Welcome to the podcast of ideas. I'm Rob Lyons. This week we talk about why tax avoidance has floated to the top of the political agenda, why plane packs for cigarettes are bad for our political health, and why the so-called sharing economy doesn't justify the hype. First the news. We've gathered members of the Institute staff here to each have their say on a recent news story, and I'm joined in the room by David Bowden, the Institute's press and PR man, and Joel Cohen and Adam Rawcliffe from Debating Matters. So first, Joel. Well, this week, uh, the Israeli premier, Bibi Netanyahu, was invited to deliver a speech in the United States Congress, uh, where he was welcomed with rapturous applause, uh, and where he talked up the the Iranian threat, kind of in a similar way to he's done in the past, talking about its tentacles of terror and and its jihadist uh, origins. And I think we kind of do have to wonder why today, with the ISIS threat, uh, on Israel's doorstep. Iran still plays centre stage in Israel's thinking. Uh, at face value, you know, we can wonder kind of whether this is a sign of uh, Israel's security uh, staying away from the ebbs and flows of minor skirmishes going on at its borders, or whether it's actually a sign of its insecurity, a kind of, you know, paranoia, but or trying to get away from uh, the kind of pathologization of Israel that often happens. I think the answer actually is neither, I think, kind of what we saw this week. You can get the impression that, you know, Bibi was showing off, he was strutting his stuff, capitalising on the fractious relations between uh, Republicans and Democrats in the States and, you know, in the absence of a strong Western foreign policy acting in the region. I think what we're seeing today is kind of regional powers, Israel today, but Turkey and also to some extent Iran making, you know, diplomatic moves towards America, you see a struggle of regional powers going on. Okay, and who invited Netanyahu to Congress, and what does that say about what's going on there? So Bibi was invited by the Republican head of the House of Representatives to give his talk in Congress behind the back of Obama, who himself and many of his staff in recent months have been you know, giving nasty quotes in the press uh, about the Israeli government. And what I think you kind of see today is, is Israel cap- really capitalising on the indecision of Obama in the region, but also of the kind of power struggles going on in Washington over America's place in the world today. And it is kind of an open question that, you know, running up to the next US election... I'm sure will kind of feature centre stage in America's place in the world. Okay, thanks, Joel. Um, One story that I picked up on was the report from the Institute for Fiscal Studies, which reported that UK average incomes in real terms are likely to have returned by now to their pre-recession level. Um, So after years of belt tightening, that's that's good news. But I don't think we should get too excited. I don't think we can do as uh, the Chancellor George Osborne declared that it was an important milestone on Britain's road to recovery. For example, incomes among young people are still well down and incomes are still to recover to the levels just after the economic crisis first hit. Which all goes to show it's been an an odd sort of crisis, really. On the one hand, unemployment never scaled the heights that many feared, uh, given the size of the crash. And on the other hand, wages have been slow to recover. And productivity, which is the thing that drives rising wages and economic growth, remains pretty stagnant. So the impact of the recession was never as great as the one in the 
1979 to 1981 in terms of its kind of social impact. But the recovery has been much slower too. And I think the real danger there is that we accept this sickly kind of economy as the new normal and serious rises in living standards become the stuff of nostalgia. And sadly, none of the major parties in the forthcoming election in the UK really has much to say about how that might change. So, Adam, what have you picked up on? So the issue of concussions in sport has again bubbled up today with the story about Fernando Alonso waking up thinking he was 13 years old after crashing in Barcelona. This issue has kind of been bubbling on the surface of UK and wider global sport, but has been particularly pertinent in regards to US sport for a few years now. Uh, Alonso, when asked by team doctors who he was, replied, I'm Fernando, I drive go-karts and I want to be a Formula One driver. And he's now set to miss the Australian Grand Prix uh, later this month. Uh, so though the panic relating to Alonso has not been too over the top, not many are calling for him to end his career, though some are saying he might have to. The issue of head injuries has threatened the legitimacy of the NFL, rugby, football and F1 over the last few years. Though we should certainly do everything we can to make sure sport is safer for athletes. Taking risks is what sport is all about. And we should not let paternalist health and safety culture allow risk aversion to pervade sport to too detrimental level. Ultimately, it boils down to freedom of choice. Alonso, like all athletes, is an adult who should be celebrated, but more importantly, allowed to take a risk in pursuit of excellence and the considerable rewards he receives. Uh, Well, if any issue is likely to cause controversy way beyond its real-world importance, it's uh, smacking. And the Council of Europe yesterday condemned France for not having a specific law outlawing it. The ruling was prompted by a complaint from a British charity which claims that in many countries, violent punishment of children is the only form of interpersonal violence in the family that's still legal. Which is an odd way of describing something that is usually intended to help socialise and protect children, not as a means of meeting out senseless injury. That's what parents understand, which is why the right to smack is generally popular in opinion polls, even though most parents use it very much as a last resort, and excessive force is still illegal. This ruling seems to be a double whammy for sovereignty. The sovereignty of parents in deciding how best to bring up the children they love, and the sovereignty of countries to determine their own laws. And finally, Dave, what have you picked up on? Well, as we know, it's been an incredibly grim news agenda um, this year, dominated by you know the rise of ISIS in the Middle East, domestic-born extremism such as jihadi John, and you know economic troubles and political troubles at home. And then every so often, a news story comes along which makes your soul pretty much sing with happiness. I think, and it came this week with the uh, news story because primary schools around the country have been celebrating World Book Day on Thursday by getting their kids to dress up as their favourite literary characters in order to kind of inspire them into reading and help them make them realise that books are cool. But it backfired yesterday when it emerged that an 11-year-old boy had been sent home um, by his school after his mum had let him come in dressed as Christian Grey, the multi-millionaire, sadomasochistic anti-hero of the smash hit books and now film Fifty Shades of Grey, replete in a nice grey suit, a grey tie, with the loving accessories of cable ties and an <laughs> eye mask. Now, putting aside the literary qualities of E.L. James, who I've always regarded as the inferior literary cousin of a, uh, Henry James, you can sort of see why the teachers might have been a little bit concerned about the reading habits of the Scholes household. The boy's mum, Nicholas Scholes, was kind of really vilified as being inappropriate, reckless and irresponsible in letting her son go to school, despite the fact that she herself 
is a primary school teacher. And she was on the Today programme this morning. You could see that she was a bit bemused by what she clearly understood as being a bit of fun. Um, she, obviously, she's not letting her son read Fifty Shades of Grey or taking him to the cinema to watch it. But he's not oblivious to the fact that this is a cultural phenomenon. That there's been a lot of saturation. Kids are not ignorant of it. And she'd spoken to him and he understood that this was a kind of adult, naughty book that had nothing to do with them. And they wanted to have a bit of fun. And he was a great hit at um, school. And as she pointed out, it was probably a lot more innocent than the teacher's suggested alternative of James Bond, who was, as she put it, a promiscuous, drunken serial killer. (laughs) No, I think it's given all of us a bit of much-needed light relief. But I think it's also brilliantly shot down a lot of the piety around World Book Day. Um, And a lot of the kind of initiatives which are always about trying to get kids reading by getting them to dress up as characters, often from books that they've already read. And as most parents would tell you, there was an enormous amount of princesses from the movie Frozen, um, which I don't think was fully understood as being because it was adapted from a book. I think perhaps they were um, uh, wanting to dress up as a princess. And I think what they've done with this kind of amusing stunt is to bring attention to several things that adults are actually really confused when it comes to matters of sexual morality, that authority is often deployed arbitrarily, and that individual self-expression can often be completely at odds with the mood of the collective. All of which, of course, are some of the prime subjects of and find their greatest expression in the world of literature, from the Scarlet Letter onwards. And I think if you really want to inspire kids into learning to love books and literature, I think you'll find that both Liam and Nicole Scholes have given us a good, hard, firm slap around the face and properly captured the true spirit of World Book Day. And on that happy note, thank you very much, Dave, and that was the news. With the UK general election just a few weeks away, one of the regular themes of the current Parliament has reared its ugly head once again. Tax avoidance and tax evasion have regularly hit the headlines in the past few weeks, particularly around the Guardian's expose of HSBC Bank for its efforts to win clients by promising huge savings in tax liabilities. While many despaired at the tax-dodging activities of so-called fat cats, the debate soon turned into farce over the suggestion by the Shadow Chancellor, Ed Balls, that everyone should get a receipt from the window cleaner or anyone else who does small jobs for us. While the debate about tax and the wider issue of the deficit is what is likely to pass for a debate about the economy in this election, does the moralistic tone also have wider implications? To discuss this, I'm joined by economics journalist and author and Battle of Ideas regular Daniel Benami. So, Daniel, why has tax assumed so much importance in political debate in the past few years? Well, the first thing to say, perhaps, is that it's not about economics. I think people make the mistake of assuming it's an economic debate and then really can't understand what's going on. The way I see it is that it's part of a debate about extreme inequality, because I think the elites, if you can call them that, they're very worried about extreme inequality, both at the bottom of society, what they would call the socially excluded, misbehaving from their perspective in all sorts of different ways, but they're also concerned about the top, the so-called super-rich or the 1% being out of control, and one way that manifests itself is in terms of tax havens and offshore financial centres and the tax avoidance debates. It's really all about trying to pull society together because they're so nervous that it's falling apart. So we've seen in the past few years people like Jimmy Carr and Gary Barlow being pulled up for getting involved in fairly complicated tax schemes and 
people making this distinction between tax avoidance and tax evasion. And perhaps you could explain, first of all, what that legal distinction has been traditionally understood as. Yeah, well, I think you're right to say traditionally understood, because the traditional understanding, which was also enshrined in law, was that tax evasion was, by definition, doing something illegal. So if you failed to declare some kind of income, or you broke the law in in some other way in relation to your income and expenses, you would be guilty of tax evasion, which would be a criminal offence, and you would be punished for it. Tax avoidance, what it meant traditionally, was just taking legal measures to minimise your tax payments. So, for example, claiming your full allowance or stating your income in a particular legal kind of way. So it was completely legal by definition. What's happened over the last few years, and in fact has now been enshrined in law, is that clear distinction between evasion and avoidance has been blurred. You can see that in the recent discussion you referred to, that people talk about them in the same breath. And in fact, even in law now, they talk about abusive avoidance. So what that means is people who are not breaking the letter of the law, but they argue are in some way breaking the spirit of the law, and therefore should be punished. And you've made a point in recent articles about how that has some broader implications for the rule of law, really. I think, yeah, that's absolutely right. Because people have bracketed it as a tax discussion or economics discussion, I think they're missing what's going on here, which is a really fundamental attack on freedom. So by the rule of law, I'm really taking the classical liberal view that the law shouldn't be arbitrary that everyone should be equally subject to the law, that if you break the law, then yes, you should be punished, but if you stay within the law, then you shouldn't be punished. So I think probably most people listening to this podcast would accept that the way the law has widened in recent years is a problem. So, for example, you have more restrictions on smoking and other kinds of behaviour. That's a problem. But I think there's another problem, which is very important but much less well understood which is that this line is being blurred so you can do things that are legal you haven't broken the law such as so-called abusive tax avoidance but you can still be punished for it and to me that's that raises a much broader point about freedom because it increases arbitrary state power yeah i mean there's 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 been a a few high profile incidents of people who have gone into schemes quite complicated schemes and then sort of after the fact ended up with a huge tax bill because they thought they were doing something legal but it's been determined some years down the line that in fact what they did wasn't legal that that does create a kind of real uncertainty about how you arrange your affairs and how you you know for, certainly for a business or for a wealthy individual that that creates a great deal of uncertainty yeah but i think the broader principle creates uncertainty for the whole of society right. because you take it out of the realm of tax and in principle it could apply to any law you can stay within the law not break any rules and in principle you can still be punished because they could argue well you're well you may not have broken the law but you're bre- bending the rules you're breaking the spirit of the law so i think it has much broader implications than tax although tax is quite an interesting example so if you take You mentioned Jimmy Carr, the comedian. He was attacked by the Prime Minister, you know, the head of government of this country, publicly attacked for a tax avoidance scheme. In other words, he hadn't broken the law. By definition, he hadn't broken the the law. And yet the Prime Minister stood up and made a public statement attacking him. 
So when people can be attacked within in that way, despite the fact that they've stayed within the law, I think that's a much broader problem. And it's certainly not just about tax or rich individuals. Yeah, and, and Jimmy Carr then kind of had to publicly repent for this. And that feeds into this discussion that's very much about this moral duty to pay tax. I mean, what do you think about that? Do you think we have a moral duty to pay tax? I don't see it in terms of morals simply because I don't really think that we have a choice. I don't have much of a choice anyway. So, for example, when we pay income tax, I mean, really, we're not paying income tax as people, certainly anyone who's worked in the job will know that your real salary is what you get in your pay packet or what you get transferred into your bank and your employer, whether you like it or not, will pay tax. So in most cases, we don't have any choice. So we don't really see it in moral terms in that respect because there is no choice. I see it much more in terms of an, a broader attack on freedom. It's a very moralistic campaign, but it's not so much about individual morals. It's more about increasing the power of the law in order to maintain social cohesion and keep society together. But it has very authoritarian consequences, in my view. Daniel Bellamy, thank you very much. The UK government has announced its determination to bring in regulations enabling the so-called plain packaging of cigarettes before Parliament is dissolved on 30th of March. That means that cigarette packets would be a uniform colour, apart from large, grisly images and health warnings. Distinctive branding would be removed and the brand name would be in a small, standardised font. Plain packs have been in use for a couple of years now in Australia without any noticeable effect on smoking rates. A cross-party committee will consider the issue next Monday with a vote, but interestingly no debate, in the House of Commons on Wednesday. So the plain packs law has consequences in terms of freedom of choice, the right of companies to protect their intellectual property, and for the democratic process too, especially when you take into account the fact that the previous consultation on the subject produced a clear majority of respondents against the measure. All this was discussed at an event last week organised by Forrest, the Smokers' Rights Group, as part of its Hands Off Our Packs campaign. You can find out more about the campaign at handsoffourpacks.com. One of the speakers was the Institute's director, Claire Fox, who raised an issue that is not often discussed in relation to playing packs, free speech. Here's what Claire had to say. So, imagine there's this magazine, let's call it Charlie Hebdo. Imagine there's this state, let's say it calls itself Islamic State. Imagine this state says to this magazine, cover up your artwork, we find it offensive. And lily-livered apologists for this state say, oh yes, your designs, Charlie Hebdo, your cartoons of Muhammad are very dangerous. It might turn everyone who sees them into hate-filled, Islamophobic, racist mob. Imagine this Islamic state says to this magazine, don't just cover up the design of your magazine, but you can't let people see that logo, that typeface for Charlie Hebdo, because it's a toxic brand, cover it up. And then it says this state of the magazine, you now have to publish our propaganda on your front page. And you also have to put gruesome images of body parts to frighten everyone who looks at it. Now, I was a bit worried that it might be a bit overblown or tasteless as an analogy, but plain packaging is a free speech issue. Companies are being denied the right to publish perfectly reasonable, inoffensive material. The names of their products, their logos, the artwork of their designers... And at the same time, those companies are being forced to publish state propaganda about smoking on the front, as well as, guess what, gory images of body parts to frighten and threaten dissenters. 
Also, the biggest aspect of a free speech principle for me is not really about tobacco companies' right to publish, but our rights as readers and viewers to be free to see and read everything and make up our own mind. The most troubling aspect of the plain packaging thing for me is what it tells us about the authorities' view of us, the public. That paternalistic idea that all some of us need to see is a tempting, well-designed image, certain words and logos, and we'll be enslaved uh, and rush off and puff away on 40 a day. It seems to me, by the way, it's even more ridiculous when it comes to the young. Listen, if young people were mindlessly influenced by clever design to act accordingly, according to the packaging, all we'd have to do is get Saatchi and Saatchi to design textbooks and the education crisis would be solved. <laughs> I, only wish, I only wish that the monkey see, monkey do version of teenagers actually worked. My nephew Declan has watched over his 14 years millions of those fairy washing up liquid adverts and I've yet to notice him walking robotic-like up to the sink. The very opposite is true. So, stop treating teenagers like they're idiots. Stop treating adults like they're teenagers. Just we, Charlie, just we, in this instance, silk-cut ultra-low. One of the candidates for the title Next Big Thing is the so-called sharing economy. The name encompasses a range of different activities, from allowing users to rent out rooms through Airbnb or find a taxi through Uber, to borrowing power tools or camera equipment or engaging in various forms of barter. The thing that links all these things is the ability to use the web to bring together people in a way that would not have been possible before. But are these different services and activities really a solution to long-standing economic problems? Indeed, are they really all that new? A few weeks ago, the Institute organised a debate on the topic in partnership with PwC. One of the speakers at the event was Rob Killick, CEO of the digital agency Clarkswell, and I'm delighted he's able to join me to talk about the sharing economy. So Rob, at the end of last year, the FT reported that Uber was being valued at $40 billion, Airbnb is valued at around $13 billion, doesn't this show that this represents a potentially very valuable new industry? Well, certainly for the owners, it's very valuable, and they provide useful services. But I don't think there's anything really game-changing about uh, these new businesses. And often, they replace existing services in a slightly more efficient way in some cases, but they're not really creating anything radically new. And so, okay, so it's not it's not a game changer in terms of the economy. One of the big problems uh, that's often talked about in relation to the economy is this: that an economy that's so reliant on services finds it very difficult to raise the productivity of services. It's much easier to raise productivity when you're making stuff in manufacturing than it is to make services more efficient. So that would sound like, therefore, that things like Airbnb and Uber and other things are a good idea. Well, I think you know it's interesting that, that, that you know we, we talk about Uber and Airbnb, and it's a bit like the private eye list. You know, yeah. uh, that's it. Yeah. Because beyond Airbnb and Uber, there are a number of interesting startups and and different types of businesses. But I doubt that this kind of approach is very generalizable. There are some areas in which it might take off. I mean, I'm not against this. Um, these developments, let's be clear. Yeah. It's just that the claims that are made for them, I think, are, are, are overhyped. 
Only if you if you look at Uber, for example, what Uber represents is a, is a a globalization of the equivalent of a local taxi firm. Because if you get a, a local taxi, then often they will have a return journey planned into their schedule. But what Uber has done is, through the use of internet technology, has made that a global phenomenon, so that all of the cabs are likely to have to be full on their next journey. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's a one-off productivity increase, which is having a huge impact on that business. But that's it. There's no, it can't go any further than that. Yeah. And, I, and I think that it, it, you would struggle to think of many other industries which would be transformed in that kind of way. And Airbnb is a slightly different, which is, and, and some of the other smaller so-called sharing industries that, where things like Airbnb are going on, is more a case of more obviously sweating the assets. And I, and I think if you if you got a house and you're not in it, then it makes sense for somebody else to be paying you. But if you take that to, uh, to its logical conclusion, you would say that the focus would always be on trying to get more out of the assets rather than creating new ones. Yeah. And I've heard it argued, you know, that it's a solution to the housing crisis in the way that in the 19th century people used to all share the same bed, you know, three eight-hour shifts in a day. I've actually heard people saying that that would be a solution to the housing crisis <laughs> if, if, this, if this was done. And I, and I, and I think it's, it's a kind of... It is really a sharing-out-the-misery kind of approach in, in, in many ways. In, in your um, speech, you were critical of this notion of sharing. Let's take that a bit further, because in some ways you're saying that this isn't really sharing at all. Well, obviously it isn't. I mean, you know, I, I think uh, if some friends of mine come over on a Saturday night and, and stay over, you know, that's sharing. Right? Yeah. I'm, I'm sharing my house with them. If I give them a bill with their breakfast, then that makes me a hotelier. It, it doesn't, it's not a personal transaction anymore. It's yeah. a financial transaction. And the same thing applies to Uber and, and most of these other things. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. But let's be clear and call it what it is. It's not sharing. It's selling. You're selling something. And, you know, I think there is something in the argument that what this represents is a kind of carbutization of the world in which we're all constantly on the lookout for how we can sell off or, you know, some stuff that we've got that we don't need or get people to pay for using it. You know, it'd be like, you know, if, you, if your next door neighbour asked to borrow your lawnmower and you said, yeah, that would be 10 quid, you know, I mean, it's not very neighbourly. Yeah. And it does, I think, you know, the monetization of, of ordinary everyday transactions is not a particularly great thing. Obviously, it's, again, it's not something that you can say, oh, no, you shouldn't do it. But, it, you know, it, I think it does point away from neighbourliness and towards a more kind of transactional view of, of human nature. And in, and in America, there is also a lot of evidence that Uber drivers, in many cases, are being forced into doing this because they haven't, they can't make ends meet. You know, so we, you know, even though they've got jobs, you know, they're having to do this stuff outside of that because the the, the kind of decline in living standards as a result of the recession and you know, wage cuts and all this other kind of stuff. So, if it's overhyped and going back to those stock market valuations, I mean, it just just seem like a typical kind of early develop a kind of bubble that we've seen quite a few times before. So if that's all overhyped and it's not really changing anything, what is required to sort of kickstart the economy and, and produce a sort of new productive age, as it were? 
uh, you can also see some of these things in, in the kind of traditional way of uh, of creative destruction you know in a sense because uh, so uber is breaking up the old often you know not very good taxi service i mean anyone who's ever tried to get a london cab late at night and to be told that when you when they find out you're going to south london actually they said no i'm going home now right because they just don't want to take you there you know obviously things like uber do represent an improvement uh in terms of the quality of service and i so we should we should always be in favor of that the problem is i don't as i said i don't think this kind of thing is is generalizable and that what's really missing is more creative destruction in the sense of more productive investment, which would raise productivity, which would enable living standards to go up, which would then take away the necessity for people to be living the car boot life. So how is that achievable? Is that something that government can in, you know, sort of wish, or is it something that has to come for some other broader driver within the economy? I mean, one of the great paradoxes of, of the current state of Western economies is that there is a huge amount of money in the system, right? There's not a shortage of, of money in that sense. You know, governments are able to borrow at incredibly low rates, often they're actually even minus interest rates now. None is being made available in the, in the money markets. Um, big companies have got huge amounts of cash stored up, which they're using to, in, in totally unproductive ways, like re, re, buying their own shares and you know all this kind of stuff, you know, and I think that there is basically a kind of investment strike going on. Uh, the Bank of England sent out a report this week about the how the pension funds, which have also got huge amounts of, of money, are not investing in long-term uh, infra, infrastructural projects, which is really what they could and should be doing. But they're playing the money markets for short-term gains. So they're not only not investing in the future, they're actually making the current situation worse and more unstable by short-term gambling, basically, and in, in order for a, for a quick, easy return. Well, I think the economy is going to be something that we'll come back to again and again, especially in the run-up to the election. But for now, thank you very much, Rob Killick. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this edition of the Podcast of Ideas. To hear more of our podcasts and subscribe to them, go to www.instituteofideas.com forward slash podcast.